Welcome, everybody, to another edition of Suave Talk presented by Dyer's Top Rods and Turbo. I think the light is at the end of the tunnel. I think we'll be racing here in the next couple weeks. You ready to go, bud? I've been ready. I think I'm hoping May 1st and 2nd we'll get to sneak in the two 5,000s that are scheduled at Ohio Valley and Tyler County. But if not, May 8th and 9th just looks promising. There's literally like 40 races on the master schedule. And a lot of, you know, there's three or four ten thousands, I think. Farmer City Fairbury with Illinois being locked down doesn't look promising, but um, there's the there's the two Lucas races at Brownstown Atomic. There's outlaw races at Cochrane. I believe that's the right weekend. There's a ten thousand win at Thunder Hill in Tennessee. There's races all over the place. Like I have on my calendar like nine different options for that weekend. So if we don't get to race next week, um, 13 days from now, I would say May 8th and 9th for sure. Everybody, you know, if you really want to race, you'll be able to find a place to race that weekend. Yeah, you see more and more states every day um, adding in, you know, like the phase one of opening up back the country. But do you think, what do you think these tracks are going to do? Do you think they'll have fans? Do you think they'll be even allowed fans? It's just going to be different from state to state, I think, here in the first next month or so. Yeah, I really don't know. I talked to Schwally and Francis yesterday, and they were like, well, there's, you know, we've got 50 different plans in place. Do we, do we have 35% capacity like Park Jefferson's doing this weekend? Do we have, you know, only an invite, a number, a number of, you know, teams, you know, how, how can we do it in the racetrack, not lose, you know, because the racetrack, that's what a lot of people understand. You know, they, they make money off the concession, the front gate, this and that. And there's a lot of places that race and, you know, they've never had a pay-per-view race their whole existence. So it'd be hard for a place to say, Hey, we can, we can't have fans, but we're going to have a race. Well, they, you know, they don't have any concession money, no front gate money. That's not good for business. So it'll be interesting to see how racetracks go about doing it. And, you know, every state's different and things like that. But I think the people that want to race and have the means to, they'll figure out, you know, what works best and just ease into it until everyone kind of gets the full green light. But like I was telling Francis yesterday, I think as long as when you walk in that front gate, you know, you sign in your pit pass and your liability and all that, you just, it needs to be very apparent, very clear that you understand the risk that is by you walking into a place that has a larger group of people, not necessarily mean you got to sit on top of each other, be close together, but you're going to a place where there's multiple people in a, I mean, per se, confined area. So we just need to make it very clear when you sign that sign-in sheet, you're aware that you're putting yourself at risk a potential you know potential to an outbreak or whatever but and it's you know i'd say 95 percent of race fans aren't the type of people that are come back and sue them but it's that one person that just doesn't get it that's gonna say oh i got this from covid and they'll shut down you know whatever racetrack for and give them a lot of problems when really the racetracks are just trying to help give us what we want to do and you know everybody's going supporting it so we all understand the risk and you just have to have a little bit of common sense which isn't very common anymore but you know if you have a baby or if you're 65 and up obviously you probably shouldn't be going to the racetracks as soon as they open back up or whatever but you know i feel like myself and other people that are healthy i mean i'm pretty confident i could walk in there and lick every doorknob at the racetrack and whatever i get i'm going to push through it so i'm not too concerned but we just need to make it very clear when we do open up hey you are at risk. We all are aware of what's going on in the world right now. Don't come back at us and try to screw over us because we're trying to do something good for society and, you know, all the racing community. And 
that would be my only fear, you know, because there is people out there, unfortunately, that they just don't get it. And, you know, they see that as, oh, hey, I could, I could get this or I can pull one over on them. And honestly, that's the, you know, that's the type of people that nobody really wants to admit that there is in the world, but there's a lot of them out there. And I just hope that, you know, these tracks that are kind of hanging their neck out there and starting to get things going and being the first ones to, you know, hang to, to really say, hey, we're going to do it. And we're going to try to do the best we can and keep people safe. And uh, I just hope that, you know, nothing like that comes and bites them in the butt because really they're, uh, you know, they're, they're the people that we should be applauding for trying to get the ball rolling here and get everybody back racing. Yeah, no doubt about that. And you see like these, like Georgia, they're opening up businesses and stuff, but they're still not allowing huge mass crowd gatherings. So that's why I think at the very beginning, we're going to see like a 50% maybe where they're spread out to follow the guidelines or maybe pay-per-view. Can some of these tracks do a full-on pay-per-view where they just get all the revenue from it? Or do yeah, you think it has think, to be a certain uh, type of track that can be allowed to do that? Like, you know, the bigger name tracks, I think maybe could squeeze by and do it. Yeah, it has to be the right racetrack. Eldora realistically could do a pay-per-view invite only. You know, just like they used to do on all the NASCAR nights, they'd only invite so many late models and so many mods, and like their pay-per-view numbers would be through the roof just because people want to see their race at Eldora and this and that. And at the same time, all the money they're losing concessions, beer, and people at the front gate. You know, I understand that they probably won't make as much money, but if they want to get the ball rolling, that's a good way to do it. So I wouldn't have the dream per se only pay-per-view. However, you know, you could have two or three races leading up to that, you know, or just even one in May just to test the waters. Just have a, a local show or an ALMS show that pays, you know, 2,000, 5,000 win late models, 1,000 win modified, and so on. And, you know, just have a pay-per-view night and see what happens. And I just don't see places, you know, summer national tracks and things like that, pay-per-view only, they wouldn't make enough money to to make it happen and have a successful year. Because, I mean, honestly, just talking to a lot of promoters and people like that, you realize that a lot of their money is made at those one big races, you know, the North South at Florence, that's like what makes his whole year. So Prairie Dirt Classic or Fairbury, it's like you know, just those big races that they yeah. need. Correct. It, I mean, it, it, it funds their whole year. And we, I mean, that's why you need to support big races like that because at the same time, that's what allows them to stay open. So you can go on a Saturday night, just you and your buddies and your friends to a local late model race. So I think, uh, we can't be too greedy and, you know, try to bleed the racetracks dry. They're all itching a race. We're itching a race. But at the same time, um, we all need to support them as best we can. If, you know, if buying a pay-per-view for Fairbury's first race is what everyone needs to do, we need to keep in mind, hey, maybe this is what will help keep them open in August when everybody is up and running. But they've had five races trying to help everybody out, and now they're, you know, they're completely broke. So I don't know what the right answer is. I know there's a ton of options, you know, 35% capacity, 50% capacity, pay-per-view, um, whatever you have it. And uh, I think we just all have to kind of take what we can get as bad as I want to say, you know, purses might not be as high as they have always been to get going. But if it means we have a, we can go out and race, I'd say most of us would take that at this point. I think at this point, I'm with you. I think places you know across the country maybe not the hot spots like the big cities you know they need to open up their small businesses follow some guidelines say my mom cuts hair so she's a beautician i would say maybe their guideline is hey they have to wear a mask and gloves and only one or two people can be in there at a time the rest have to wait you know outside you know in their car just you know to make everybody feel comfortable and stuff like that it's just a hard thing to say because do you want to open up too quick and then all of a sudden you know this one state 
breaks wide open and then we have to close down again here in two or three months that's like the tough decision that you know politicians racetracks owners like that that's i don't even it's just hard to answer isn't it yeah there's, there's no right answer that's what i'm saying i think you know as a whole society we just have to have common sense once again i i know that if i get sick i'm not going to go to the doctor unless unless my arm's falling off or something like that yeah so, if I do think, hey, man, I got a little bit of a cold here, instead of going and flooding the hospitals and making a big deal, you got to – the people that, you know, are very healthy and can fight through and they think they've already had coronavirus or what have you, those are the people that really can go and live and do their life because obviously it hasn't got to them yet and the chances of it getting to them at this point is lower than it was. And if you're just a – I mean, you just have to know yourself. Like, I don't go rock climbing because, one, I don't like heights that much, and, two, I don't want to die that way. So, like, you just don't put yourself in positions to, you know, don't set yourself up for failure is all I'm saying. So I think if we all kind of keep that in mind and just really use our brains with what we're doing and don't be doing anything that's not necessity to us. I mean, racing to me would be my necessity. I would go race before I went to a mall, and I would take my chances of getting something out of the racetrack in the mall. So as long as we just don't go – bonkers when everything opens back up i see it just being a it's done it's over and uh you know just practice good hygiene which i think a lot of people apparently never practiced before this epidemic has hit us all because <laughs> i know I've, I've been a connoisseur of hand sanitizer since i was a little kid and, and now apparently everyone is and it's, it's honestly kind of gross if you just realize how dirty people are and what it's come to you know like toilet paper paper towels cleaner like you can't even buy that store right now or before it was abundant so it's uh just keep practicing you know self-sanitation and just be self-conscious a little bit and i don't see there being any problems here in the near future i want to have tyler herb put on his fortune teller hat when do you think we'll get the full green light when you can have a pack stands there's no limit just like it was last year in 2019 at the World 100, the dream where you can have everybody go to one spot and everybody feel safe. So when do you think that will be? Because I think we'll have races with half crowds or no crowds, but we will have races here in the next couple of weeks, like you're saying. But when do you think it'll be a full-blown green flag? Um, I mean, just, just my personal opinion, I think May is going to be a test run for a lot of these places. They're going to have races. They're going to have half capacity, whatever. Then we're going to get to June. And the first big one hits. When the dream hits, the dream will happen. I, in my eyes, I may be wrong. They might can't. They might be in the talks canceling right now. But I think the dream will happen under some sort of, you know, fifty percent, whatever, whatever have you. You know, if there's a place they can figure it out and make it work, they're going to be the ones to do it. So I think the dream happens. And after the dream happens, two weeks later, they're going to say, okay, the dream, you know, normal capacity is thirty thousand to have. I don't even know how many people, but. They had this many people. The race was a hit. The pay-per-view numbers were 200% what they normally are. Okay, we can do this. And then the rest of June will be the same. People try to follow the mold of Eldora, I think. And then come July, end of July, it'll be wide open, racing as much as you want to race, you know, as much people. But, a little bit of butt, fine print, they're still going to have to practice the wash your hands. Just, you know, things that we shouldn't have to preach, they have to preach that, hey, in order for us to continue this and not let it blow out of proportion again, we need to, we are, we're going to allow more people, more people, more people, but at the same time, you know, wash your hands, don't lick doorknobs, just don't be a gross person, and we won't have these issues. If you see french fries on the ground at the concession stand, don't pick them up and eat them. If you have small children and you think that they're a germ carrier or whatever, maybe leave them at the house with a babysitter tonight, you know, just things like that. I think that there'll just be a lot of suggestions come end of July 
or, you know, mid July, end of July, there'll be a lot of suggestions, but it'll still be, Hey, we're open to do whatever y'all want to do. Just please use your best discretion. So I'd say end of July, PDC is probably going to be the first race. It's uh, all you can do. You know what I mean? Everyone come camp and have a good time. Yeah. I said the week before, uh, Brian Liverman, me and him were texting yesterday, crew chief for Mason Ziegler. And I said that the silver dollar nationals will be the first one where we have a full capacity crowd or allowed. I just think a lot of States and different parts and, uh, sanctionings are just going to take those steps to work their way up. But I like your plan, you know, test the waters at Eldora, see what they do, and then other checks follow. So I think that's a pretty good idea moving forward. Yeah, that's my two cents. Summer's on its way. We said June, July is when the racing season's really going to amp up. We'll see some stuff in May. And we had Todd Turner on. We interviewed him back at Speed Weeks because he doesn't go to the track as much as he used to. He's always working on the back end of the website. And we had a heyday with him. You looked like a a Jabawaki from, um, not Jabawaki, the Ewok, that's what they're called, from Star Wars, listening to C-3PO, just in amazement of all the stories he told us from how Dirt on Dirt started and all the classic Summer National stories. Yeah, Todd, I mean, a lot of people don't really know Todd, I guess, until you meet him and you see him, and he's just, he has so much to do with, uh, I guess, Dirt Late Model Media and growing it and, you know, getting us exposure that we would have never really imagined. Um and we have to give him a lot of thanks for what he's done and, you know, him and Rigsby and a lot of people at Dirt on Dirt and things like that. So just talking to him, you don't realize, you know, what this guy's seen and lived. He's like one of those Vietnam vets or World War II <laughs> people that have seen and lived through everything. And you're like, holy smokes, this guy, like he's got some knowledge and he has seen a lot of things go down at the racetrack. And uh, I think my favorite part is when he, he uh, you know, he kind of talks about the summer nationals and just, all the racing and how big he, you know, he kind of saw the vision of, Hey man, there's a lot of racing going on. And in his mind, I think he knew it could grow up, grow and be even more and even more. And, um, and it's crazy that his prophecy has come through. It's, it's come true, I guess. And now our interview with the goat, Todd Turner. Joining us now on the Integra shocks and Springs hotline is the goat, the Todd father. He's shaking his head right now, but it's Todd Turner, Todd. I know you've, I've given plenty of interviews to Michael Rigsby, but you're on the Suave Talk podcast. Just you're laughing a little bit. Describe the feelings right now. Well, I mean, I never thought I would be in this position. It's great to be here with you guys and uh, early in the podcast history to uh, to join you guys. Yeah, I've had fun. I listened to the previous shows, and it was fun to uh, to hear you all uh, knocking it around with everybody. When you watched me race five, six years ago, did you ever think that me and Suave would have our own podcast and we'd be – to the caliber of podcast, you know, greatness that we are so I, early. I definitely did not know you would reach those heights. I knew your your driving career was very promising. Your podcasting career was a little up in the air. So how long have you been covering dirt late model racing? Um, I guess officially about 26. This is my 26th season. I kind of, but I kind of started on my own, not professionally i guess so i started with a little thing called dirt news digest where i would just uh, kind of early in the email and the internet era i would email my own race reports out when i would go to races for instance speed weeks um, or whatever race i went to and i would uh, fashion a report um, that would you know be kind of the stuff i write now you know quotes and stories full stories about everything that happened then I would also kind of compile results from around the country and send those out as well. I also had a website, but it was mostly more of a, the email reports is what 
kind of uh, got me going and got Dirt News Digest popular. And then when did you like decided to go full time into it? And so the Dirt News Digest thing was kind of like for fun or kind of you know it was not I, I wasn't making money doing it. Uh, I mean, I was getting credentials to go to races, and I enjoyed that, and I got to meet a lot of people and kind of get in the industry a little bit. Um, but basically, I was still working professionally as a journalist, as a sports copy editor uh, at the Owensboro, Kentucky newspaper. And then my, I did, ended up leaving that job, and I was kind of figure, trying to figure out what to do, and an opening came up at National Dirt Digest, or they actually, I guess, just started publishing uh, in 2007. Uh, and I joined them uh, just a few weeks into that uh, run. And I worked there up until I worked at Dirt on Dirt all the way through 2007, I guess. Yeah, we know the story of you starting with Michael Rigsby in 2007. But we got to ask, how much did you, how much do you remember young Michael Rigsby being annoying at the racetrack, being a little nerdy, dirt late model kid? I mean, that's probably a little bit overplayed. I literally do remember meeting him at West Plains, and I guess he was 14 or 15, uh, and his dad's kind of in the background, and he kind of runs up and talks to me because they were, and I remember his email address, all those people I would email on Dirt News Digest, a lot of them would respond to me or maybe send in results or news tidbits. So I do kind of, I did kind of know him or know who he was, and so he comes up at West Plains during the Show Me 101 year, and and just, you know, wants to shake my hand, and we just chatted a little bit. And Michael always talks about how that was uh, the moment that changed my life or that would go on to change my life. I'm just picturing you because I've seen you in the zone working at the racetrack, and you see him running around too, that you see this little 13, 14-year-old kid, hey, Todd, Todd, and you're, like, writing a story, and you're, like, still typing away while he's trying to talk to you. I figured that's something that happened along those lines. Well, mostly, and even now, I try to lay low a little bit, you know, just kind of, I, mean, I feel like sometimes you get the better stories when you kind of, or can kind of like suss out what's going on or kind of like talk to the crew guys or get a few hints before you dive in and figure out a story. So yeah, when back then I was probably lay, uh, laying a little bit low when he uh, ran up and uh, and uh, side, side swiped me. So what about like, Okay, you know, there's Kovac and there's all these other guys that come around and do interviews and things like that. Like, who do you think? I mean, just give me two. Give me one. Who is like one of your favorite reporters to read and kind of watch in action? And then give me somebody you're like, man, this guy, he just he just doesn't get it. Like, he's not a guy you want to. There's because I mean, I have Kovac people could be for both. There, I have. I'm telling you, there's some guys that come up to me at the racetrack, and I'm like, man, like I'll come in the trailer because I just don't want to talk to him because I just, you know, from a from a racer standpoint, you're like this guy's setting me up for failure, you know, the way he's talking to me, or he doesn't want the scoop. And then some people, like, I can tell them exactly what they want to hear. You know, like like Kovac, I always tell him exactly what I think because I know he'll bleep it out or he just won't put it out because he doesn't, you know, he doesn't want to put bad press out. So who, you know, since just all the people you've seen, met, been around, give me a good one and a bad one. I mean, definitely Kevin ranks way up there. And to tell the story, it's funny, us being here at East Bay, this is where I met Kevin when he was working for Area Auto Racing News. And I was working, I guess, first for Dirt News Digest and then National Dirt Digest because it was a little bit rare to come back here in the pits and talk to drivers after the race. And uh, and another guy's interviewed them, like, you know, kind of like a, a, a reasonable asking good questions interview because a lot of times – you know, either either reporters never talk to the drivers and they would just write up a little report. Or you could tell if it's a local newspaper guy or something, they kind of come back here and 
they they just don't know what's going on. They're like, you know, how how did you win? Or they just don't understand anything about the lingo or what's going on. So Kevin, uh, you know, meeting him here and then kind of watching his career. And then not long after, or I guess years after that, he became the World of Bylaws guys, and I got to know him pretty well. And then fortunately enough, we were able to get him at Dirt on Dirt. So he's he's a really good one. I don't I don't know about throwing any particular person under the bus, but I do. I am bothered a little bit about sometimes people that don't have an awareness or and try to write things without asking the Facebook drivers. ones a lot of those well, Facebook I mean, posts about everybody's a news writer is, now right in social media era yeah. we we have reached that point uh, but even before that the some of the reporters they would just write stuff without asking I mean just just ask the driver I mean you know you at least you want to get that reaction from them and uh, and really with their news digest when I first started I think that was why uh, I got a lot of, I mean, people, people loved it. And I know it sounds quaint in this day of pay-per-views and everything to get an emailed report, but you realize back in 1995, for the most part, people were getting that was um, all they could get a to weekly see. newspaper. Yeah. You weren't born yet. No, uh, I, yeah, yeah, that was like a thought. a weekly newspaper that would come, if you're lucky, within a week of being published. Right. So instead, now, uh, at the World 100, for instance, on Saturday night, I was right there up in the press box writing, and I would send out a report within a few hours of the race that had the full details and every single thing about it. And it was, I mean, it really was like a little bit of a game-changing thing. Right. More of a, a foreshadowing to kind of what Dirt on Dirt really fully became right, right. Uh, using the Internet. And that's where really I saw that uh, I saw where it was going, especially a sport like this, a relatively niche sport that's not going to, you know, it's not going to get the big uh, media coverage in local towns and stuff. But there's diehard fans across the country who they can get it, you right. know, over the so internet. So basically you kind of foreshadowed the source of how people could keep up with dirt late model racing without driving to every single race. Yeah, I mean, I'm not saying I'm like some kind of revolutionary or something, but people – Loved. I mean, the the emails I would get, especially from like people who wanted to follow a driver. Yeah. Think about that. You know, years ago, and you would have to wait a long time to hear about it, or even family members. You'd have to call them or whatever. They'd be on the road. So to get those night after night reports, uh, I mean, it was just, it was it was super fun. It made it very exciting for me because I'm providing this service, and it made me, um, you know, some of the some of the fun stories I got to cover. You really feel like you're revealing some news that's you know changing the sport a little bit it was a lot of fun and somebody that changed the sport was obviously you and michael riggs you had dirt on dirt so take us through that marriage in 2007 when you know he kind of contacted you and you're like i don't know what was your like first initial thoughts well michael and i talked he ended up uh stringing and helping out with national dirt digest quite a bit so we worked together and talked quite a bit and really probably about i think it was about 2004 we met, we got together on the phone, and we kind of saw what Dirt on Dirt, what needed to happen. And, you know, I was still working at Dirt National Dirt Digest. He was kind of just starting his TV broadcasting career. And, we, you know, we were kind of waiting for the moment to work out. And it kind of finally did. I mean, for his, his, his job, he came to a point where he wanted to do it. Uh, I was at National Dirt Digest, and, and it was a comfortable, good job, and I was doing well. But I was also... A little frustrated by working at this place that was sending out 
the newspaper that was, again, a week late. Right, right. Uh, so I saw it as the opportunity to kind of get back to that fresher journalism. Uh, and so we kind of plotted through 2007 and kind of pieced together how it was going to work. I mean, now, to me, it's been just a way bigger success than I think either of us thought it would be. Uh, we were young and dumb back then. I mean, he was younger than me. Maybe, and I was probably dumber, but but way back then, I, visualizing what it was going to be and what it was going to take. Because I remember starting with some people, we would explain what we're doing. They'd be like, oh, that's never going to work right. and whatever. And we didn't have like a ton of naysayers because I think once it started, people kind of saw. But I mean, we started with, I mean, the World 100 Weekend, I think we had like 39 subscribers. I mean, it's not like we started and it was like, woohoo, it's a huge success. It took a while to get, it was a grind to get going. And I mean, really those first three or four years, you know. And I feel like that World 100 was a good weekend to start, but then that following year, right, kind of like the 10 races and 10 nights at uh, Golden Isles kind of propelled you guys, or was that a year and a half later? Yeah, no, that was the next speed week. So, Golden Isles did yeah, so 10 they had races. 10 nights in a row. Yeah, it was 10,000 every night. Every, to win. Yeah, yeah, and that right. kind of just exploded. And then on top of East Bay and Belusia. And, and again, we're still in the air then. Social media had, you know, it was just on the cusp of social media. Uh, so, we were really the news, you know. I mean, so those Golden Isles nights, we would. We were working, and you would look yeah, at Michael the, you would look it would at the description. It'd only be you, Michael, Amber, and maybe like two other photogs. Otherwise, no one really knew besides the word of mouth what was going on. Yeah, I mean, on. it was just, I mean, who can, on a Tuesday night in January, not everybody can, you know, take off work and run down there. So it it, it was one of those things where people were really following us, and the, the subscription numbers, from then on, they just... They just ballooned, and it was uh, it was exciting times. I mean, but again, it was a little bit. We, I mean, we knew what we were doing, but you know, we were just kind of following our noses, trying to make this work. And uh, and it's amazing what it became, really. How many? Okay, like when you're in goal with Dirt on Dirt now that it's sold to Flow Sports and this and that. I mean, what do what do you see Dirt on Dirt becoming in the next five to ten years? What what can make it even better than what it is now? Because like when I, I mean, I've I've only. I've had a Dirt on Dirt account since I was probably 50, so eight years, and just from eight years ago to now, it's like, you know, all the the new and the live pay-per-views and just everything. It's like every year there's always something new that happens. The podcast, even like when Rigsby started his podcast, like, it's just like, like, you're adapting just as fast as social media is, so like, what? That's big of that we're evolving with. It what is. Times are. Yeah, yeah, like, you're literally, like, as Facebook's making it now, Facebook has dating, like, it's like Dirt on Dirt has a podcast, you know, it's every, uh-huh. every... Every year it's evolving. So what in five to ten years do you think Dirt on Dirt flow sports? I mean, what can make it even better, you know? Predict I mean, that's the future, a good basically. question. And I think we've we've struggled with that. I would say definitely we are – the pay-per-views has arrived for sure. But I think there's still room for that to play out and see how that's going to work. You know, it's funny. In one way, because of social media and the, the amount of information, the electronic scoring – now some of that information is available that wasn't available. For instance, at Golden Miles that first year, there was no there was no electronic scoring. There was no you know you had to call somebody or get texts from somebody from a Golden Miles to find out the results. So we really were the news source. Well, you know, fast forward here to East Bay, you yeah. got electronic scoring, you got pay per view. Everybody knows people going Facebook Live. Yeah, for Facebook Live. So yeah. in a way, we we now we now we pivot again toward telling more of the deeper inside story. You know, where you get Kevin with a with a column that's going to, you know, break down uh, either a driver or an issue that's a bigger deal. You know, you, you kind of pivot back toward, uh, uh, for at least for my part of it, from the word side, to telling more detailed behind-the-scenes stories. You know, you get 
you know, everybody's going to know the results and stuff, but you want to give them that next level of uh, thing. I mean, five or ten years down the road, that's, you know, I, I think I think pay-per-view has legs. That's going to keep going for a while. Uh, but how the, the whole website will evolve and news, uh, you know, it's, it's I, I mean, I think that's a, that's a tough guess, and it's hard to know. Yeah, with social media and stuff, do you think, why is it back in the day, like when a Bloomquist story happened like 20 years ago, it felt like it was more magnitude than it is now? Is it because people are immune to seeing it all the time? Or do you think it was because there wasn't that much news outlet and you just kind of heard different parts of a story? <laughs> right, and by the time right. it gets to you, it's kind of like the telephone yeah. game. Yeah, it's telephone. Well, yeah. yeah, probably so. I've heard you talk about that. And you're, you know, you being younger, you, you I think, see that in a different way. Uh, you know, you, I mean, I feel like you kind of think it's not as, as a big deal. I guess everybody sees it, and it's more of a, a real thing. Now, think about, you know, when people don't know something, it has a, some mystique to it. Oh, did you hear, oh, did you hear a, a Jack Boggs was lighted fartly in the Summer Nationals yeah. race, you know? And then all of a sudden, you know, oh, no, I heard seven guys were like, something was wrong with the scales. And then there's a big, you know, a big thing. That was the Gopher 50 in 1995, I Didn't think. the eighth-place winner win? Or something um, like yeah, that. No, the but there was a, there were seven guys that were like. It was like the uh, first three, and then a couple was, more in the top was, ten. It was, it's a big it's a big squabble. But the thing is, when you don't have either a pay per view or firm reporting of what's going on, that stuff balloons and becomes kind of a uh, again mystical. You know, and you hear these stories about what's going. on. Oh, oh, did you hear this? You know, and it's you know, and it's fifth hand by then, so it becomes kind of a uh, it becomes lore. Yeah. Do Do you miss it? Do you miss that lore stuff now? Because I feel like it's kind of rain. I don't think we'll have like, you know, Turbo last night. You know, MF and the, you know, the camera guy and stuff like that. If that happened like ten years ago. I feel like it would have got more track than it would now because people I, saw it on the broadcast. I don't know, but I'm telling you, I think it it does catch a lot of heat because there was however many people watched that live last night. I'm telling you, I had people calling me and texting me about it. Like, hey, did like we could hear you in the camera? We're like, if you know, the only people that were here last night in the in the little. You know, where we pit, they would be the only ones that truly knew. Like, every single person that watched pay-per-view last night got to see that because of the pay-per-views. Well, it's more immediate today, yeah. right? I think and, it, and, it peters out. It goes, the, it burns. It's like flames out. The cycle is very yeah. quick. It, fly, it flames out. Today, not something just, crazy can yeah, happen. Yeah, not just in racing, but everything. The news cycle just churns and right, turns right. so quickly. Whereas, yeah, in the days of the old newspapers being mail, mailed out, or the next Saturday night when you got to the track and all your buddies yeah. were saying, oh, did you right. hear about Turbo? You know, and all that. So, so yeah, it's just it's just a, the speed of it is yeah. way different. Quicker turnaround, basically. Turbo is a big summer nationals guy. You love the summer nationals. I am the like basically the face of summer nationals. Now that's what Rigsby says. So I'm going to give you a couple different stories that you know, me and you or Rigsby have talked throughout the years, and maybe Turbo's heard some of them. But we got to ask about Bob Memmer. He probably has no idea who he is. I re- I really don't know who he is. Like. He was the first guy that kind of started the Summer Nationals at UMP, and he was just quite the character. What do you think about him? Well, I mean, he's just, uh, you know, a a complete character and kind of a caricature of himself almost (laughs) in the sport. So the story goes way back in 84 when the Wedge era was – people feared that was kind of ruining late model racing. Uh, they came up with a group to, to, to refine the rules, which basically became UMP, and Bob ended up 
heading up UMP. Then he launches the Summer Nationals a few years later. And I guess it really started kind of in the mid-80s in a smaller level. Uh, it was kind of called Gold Cup and some other names. And eventually, really in the late 80s and about 90, when Bloomquist ran it the first year, it kind of exploded and became a big thing. And the night after night race, and I remember going to that, and I'll talk about memory in a minute, but let me tell you, the first Summer Nationals race I went to, so it was at a Hobstadt. Best racetrack in the country. I, oh, my goodness, I love Hobstadt. And <laughs> yeah, I was racing. It. I was going there a lot. Luckily, I was living close by there. And... Uh, and seriously, I'm like, I, I, I remember this as plain as day. I kind of see somebody has a flyer on the bleacher in front of me. And so I reach down to grab it, and it's like the summer national schedule. I, I mean, I don't know anything about this. And I'm like, <laughs> what? Yeah. And I'm like, uh, and, and I'm off. Uh, you know, it's like in the summer, and I got some days off. So the next night, I'm in Farmington, Missouri at St. Francois County, race, watching the next race. And then from then on, I took my vacation every summer nationals and uh, – and, and it was fantastic. So Mimmer, um, so he was, you know, he ran UMP, and he was all at all the Summer Nationals races. Eventually, Sam Driggers kind of becomes his right-hand man. Of course, he runs it now. But Bob was, uh, um, I mean, stubborn doesn't begin to explain the type of guy he was. He was, uh, you know, the, the UMP body rules were very restrictive. And for many years, even when other uh, organizations were having – uh, gave a little more flair to the body and let, allowed you to have a little more modern things. Uh, whenever they come back to Eldora, everybody would complain because they'd make them have the slab sides yeah, and right. everything was completely bolted down to be very, very basic UMP rules. And people hated it. And, and I get that. But, but there is some, uh, but Bob did give something to the sport and to having kind of like, kind of holding that UMP together and to make you weekly racing. Um, and you enjoy that being in Illinois, you know, super late model racing as it is in Illinois being a weekly thing still, uh, which it is not very many places. You can thank Bob member for that because Illinois and the UMP strength of those weekly shows were just amazing back then. But Bob, I mean, personally, he was, he was gruff, often unshaven, uh, you know, overweight, and he drove this big van. He yeah, had to talk turbo about the van. Yeah, he had different vans over the years, and he used to have he a drive it to the infield before the races and stuff, right? <laughs> yeah, and so he would always park in the infield because he, he couldn't get around very good, uh, especially in his later years. And the van was musty; would be a generous way to to say how it smelled. And it, it was just he he was kind of lived in and. Uh, and again, Bob, you know, everybody kind of know how he is and they go talk to him or, or complain to him or whatever. He was kind of the center of the thing, but he, he was an odd person, but he was, to me, he was just always very gracious. Uh, often did interviews for him. Well, actually one of the, my favorite stories I've ever written. I did, um, um, I guess it was just a couple years before he died, I did a big profile on him of like 7,000 words. And it really, I mean, I really spent a lot of time with him, talked to tons of people who knew him. Uh, and it's really one of my favorite pieces. And uh, Bob, uh, um, again, off, off criticized and certainly had his uh, shortcomings, but, uh, but really was uh, important for getting your beloved Summer Nationals going. Scott Bloomquist did 
he come on the Summer Nationals and after that become, he became a household name, or was he a household name before that? Well, he'd won the World 188, and he had already, people in East Tennessee knew him, but I think the Summer Nationals kind of made him uh, more of a national star, and people in the upper Midwest who knew about him winning the World 100 or heard of him were getting to see him. Uh, and think about the Summer Nationals back in that early 90s. Oh, my goodness, it was Bloomquist and Moyer and Pierce, Gill, Curry, night after night, lots of really good guys. Um, I don't know. It was just it was a it was a fantastic time for the summer nationals, you know, and it had its pluses and minuses. Just like today, of course, they had rainouts, and sometimes you go to terrible tracks. Uh, but uh, <laughs> terrible. But they went. Uh, but Bloomquist, I mean, you know, I, I forget in ninety or ninety one, Bloomquist won eight in a row at some point or something. I mean, just crazy. He was very good, and uh, and Moyer obviously had his good years some some years later on the summer nationals. But the summer nationals are just. It's just a great – I mean, I always say this. If if you tell me, oh, you can only go to 12 races a year, I'm like, well, that's easy. I'm going to the Summer Nationals. That might be you too, Turbo. That's me. I'm telling you, when I get old enough, that's what I'm going to do. Or if I – you know, when I'm 30 or 40 and running a Moyer schedule, that's – I just love the – I mean, it's such a relaxed – like the feel. Like when you show up to a Summer Nationals race, to me, it's like when I was 15, 16, I'd get out of school and I'd get to go race Friday, Saturday. I was real excited. You know, everybody – it was like your same little group of people that you would see at your local track. That's how Summer Nationals feel is. And I just, I swear the best races that you'll ever watch, 90% of them are on the Summer Nationals throughout the year. And I, I mean, and most people agree, like, it's the racetracks, the, the group of cars, like, they just know how to put on good shows. And it's there's yeah. very it's very hard to disagree with it. And then the, there's always the rule flair, you know, with the Moyer thing two years. There's always, you know, a little bit of a... You know, kind of a little bit of controversy, but not enough to go over the top. Right, 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 right. It's like, man, we really don't know if we like. Are they letting it get out of hand? But it's so good. It's like, ah, oh, we got to keep watching and see what happens this week. Well, it's a little bit like uh, you know the same group when you have them together so long. You know, you, you everybody kind of develops this inside story, and they kind of know what's going on. And you're racing every night. And you feel like you're a little bit, you know, Tuesday night. And I'm at the racetrack. You know, you're kinda, right. you kind of cheat and work a little bit. Uh, it, it, it becomes this little traveling circus of. Uh, of uh, you get controversy, you get your two drivers who are feuding. You know, every every summer nationals, you can kind of peg like things are gonna how things are gonna play out, and that's what makes it so fun. And it's great to go to one or two races if you're a fan, but to, if you can get to go to several in a row, you really kind of become part of it, and you remember, oh, you know, something happens on the track. Oh, remember two nights ago he, right. he wrecked him in the heat, right, you know? right, right, and you're really paying attention to all those little intricacies. 2009, I think it was, Super Shep. That was like, that was before social media really buzzed too, because if that was going on now, you guys are at Highland. I'm there helping Jeff Curl, so I remember that thing to the day I'm in the stands. The next day, they have Super Shep shirts at Macon, like, and then you, that, that was all people were talking about. That's like one of the most iconic dirt on dirt summer national things, too. Yeah, and I, I mean, personally, I, I mean, and this is one of those instinct things, and Michael and I talk about this, you know you got to know when to react and know what's going on and know the sport. I'm sitting in Highland infield, and they had a kind of a would-be trailer. It was a horrible, <laughs> horrible room of some sort, you know, glass, and so it's hot in there. And I'm sitting there typing qualifying results because it's the only place I could hear. I had to hear the announcer. I couldn't hear him outside good. And so I'm sitting there, and as soon – and then I'm doing the, the, um, heat. the heat race results. Yep. Or, and, and as this race is happening, you know, Shepard and Irby kind of gotten into it. And as soon as that happened, I, 
I grabbed my camera you knew and it was ran happening. out of there. Well, I just, if it was going to happen, I was not going to miss it. But, it, I mean, it, as it turned out, I could not have run. I run to, like, the perfect space. I'm, like, in between where Shepard was and Herb's car was in the infield. Fortunately, no one in front of me. And I had a fixed lens camera, so I didn't have any zooming capability. And it just turned out to be the perfect lens to get, you know, Shep top to bottom <laughs> as he runs. And I got 40-something frames of him lumbering yeah. down the front stretch. And those steps up the car are hilarious. And I'm just firing everything. My, comp- You know, I don't have the fanciest of camera, but I just have the, the shutter held down. Yeah. And, 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 you know, I, didn't, I was taking it in as I'm doing it, but I didn't realize as soon as it was over, kind of like, oh, my goodness, that is going to be huge. You know, you kind of knew it because I remember me and Michael, after right after the heat race, we went outside and met, and I immediately posted the pictures, and it just – it exploded. I mean, it was funny. What about – he knows Rusty Griffall. He races. We got to talk about the famous night at Camp Motor Speedway with Rusty Griffall. I don't think you've ever heard this. I don't, I'm telling you, I have. There's so much summer national history. Like, I'm just dabbled in it, like – this is they this said is an Rusty. See, everyone always talks about Rusty. Like, oh man, you don't understand Rusty. Rusty, and like, I'm like, I. Can't. But he wasn't even a late model driver at the time, right? No, not well. It. He used to be, and now he's back in modern. But he was a mod so during that happen. night. Okay, yeah. so what happened? Well, I mean, so this camp, is an all timer, and uh, there's been you know a half a dozen of these in summer nationals. The track's too wet. The, the points drivers are going to refuse to race, and they're trying to get everybody to cancel. And that's basically what it was at camp. We get there at, like, 5. At 5.30, it just deluges for about 20 minutes. And, and any normal track, any normal night, it had been like, well, we're heading home. You know, there's no way we can race. Uh, well, we kind of sat there, and they're hemming and hawing for probably an hour and a half or two uh, between <laughs> Sam Triggers and the, and, and the camps then that were running the track. And, uh, and while this discussion is going on, Rusty just gets his modified and decides, he says he was one of the ones, oh, we could race, and he wants to go prove it. So he just gets in his car and goes out on the track. Well, as soon as he goes on the track, of course, everybody in the sands is like, yeah, we're gonna, they're going to pack it. We're going to race. So so it kind of forced the track to like kind of go with it at that <laughs> point. Because I wasn't sure. I'd have to look exactly. But I think technically in time i think they literally had canceled it before he got on the track but as soon as that happened it was kind of like oh what are we gonna do and uh and eventually all of a sudden we're racing i, I guess about six or seven guys the points guys mostly still did not race and they, they, loaded they up. take that and it was you, very you rough could re- you could p- replace one right like you they like took uh, they one, your worst night some some provisional yeah. uh through the rest of the <laughs> season Grimble. but anyway we raced and it was horribly wet and horribly fast eric smith one shepherd his, about died lone summer nationals race uh yeah it was a, it turned out to be a late uh, crazy wet night uh and i wrote a story i had to write stories about the fiasco about the race you know um it was it was nuts and at that point summer nationals you're like okay we can take maybe a rain out here or there you know and then you see that rain it might be like one of those rains where you weren't expecting it and it's just a downpour and they cancel and it's like a great night so i think like a lot of those drivers maybe the riders and you were kind of maybe excited it was going to rain out but then rusty well, Griffall saves the day you just yeah. don't want a crazy night like that but it's funny how rusty i mean he that's what he's known for On and he's always just talking to me about it. he's always saying yeah he goes yeah they need like if if we're at a racetrack if they need somebody to go out there i'll go out there you know he's complete he's opposite mindset of everyone i'm telling you like just here at east bay people are so mad to pack and it's like i mean we're here like 
I'm I'm kind of the same way. Like I'm a look. I've done spent the money, the time, the effort to be here. Like I would I would just as soon race ninety percent of the time, unless it's going to be bad, bad. Mark Richards always has to talk me down off the ledge because I'm I'm pretty good at just getting up there and ready. But uh, yeah, I mean I'm I'm team Rusty on that one. I got two more here. All right, you love Hopstot. He loves Hopstot. You and Rigsby, my first year in 2012 summer, Hobstock's this great track, yada, yada. I've never been there. And we see Scott Weber pull off, like, one of the biggest upsets in Summer Nationals history. Just That was a pretty great night. And I think Rigsby got lucky shooting that race, by the way. Yeah, it was uh, – you know, Weber was driving a car that wasn't very familiar, and other guys had driven it that year, and Michael didn't know if he was lapped or not. So he's shoot, luckily shooting this pack of cars that, that he's in, and he does turn out winning. But uh, but that's the beauty of the Summer Nationals is a guy like Weber winning one. And really, down deep, when you're like a true race fan, that's why you go to the Summer Nationals. Sure, it's great to see Moyer and Bloomquist or Herb win one but it's fun to it's fun to see uh somebody who really is truly a local driver win a race one yeah. night just knock those guys off and you know a 40 lap race on a at hobstot or some bull ring like that it can happen and when it does it uh it makes it special that was a, that was a fun night we were sitting next to each other when yes, it happened i remember the uh the announcers like scott weber and then we go to interview bab and uh J- scott james and bab's like yeah what's his name that 92 car like no one had any idea who this guy was and i really didn't know who he was and big dirt on dirt supporter so i gotta give scott weber a shout out but that was one of the magical nights in summer nationals does he still so, race does no he's no. kind of done no. now but Wait, i mean i remember i've seen the video a million times but like i I don't even yeah. remember. Is he just like local Hobstock? Like uh, mostly I fifty five and Tri City around okay. there. But he he was a good driver. But he's kind of in different cars and uh, kind of part of a team there. But right. I'll tell you that you mentioned that they called him by his number. My favorite thing in interviews is when a dri- when a driver has to call the other guy by his number. You know he doesn't know him. Not like. Either they call him by his number because they're mad at him. And yeah, that's what I say. That's a lot of people say. Or they'll call him by his number because they, they don't know, don't who, know he who he was. Or the color. Which, be like, that green car. <laughs> yeah. That green car. That blue car. And, uh, I like that. And with Weber, it's hilarious. Because if you look at the old inter- the interviews after the race, I think Bab's like, you know, the, the 92, whoever was in the what's 92. His 92 he, he, yeah, what's his name? That's know? awesome. I mean, it's funny to see a guy like that win. And we got it finish off with summer nationals you got to go with macon like they have probably the most historic herald and review 100 virgil story shane and bab we talked to him about it but i want to get your writing perspective while all this is going on we got the driver's side of the yeah. store we got to get you how did you like assess that night uh it was one of the most magical and, and maybe the best race like story-wise i've ever covered it was just it was magical to watch this happen because something about me when I was a little kid, I liked the I liked the weird things that happened, like oh somebody's in another car or or oh he's gonna drop out and he's gonna drive his car or something. So to watch that literally happen in the infield, so to, so to set it up the. Herald and Review, which is always seemingly controversial. It seems like always something. I mean, we had one this last yeah, year. You Bobby know? crashed. Bobby won. Won. Yeah, that's right. Uh, but but uh, And we come off a controversial, controversial one the year before. So this year, uh, Bab uh, is getting ready to start. You know, they got 24 cars out there. They're going around. And Bab's car just shuts down, loses power. And he just coasts to the infield. Oh, it's kind of a bummer. Uh, but then all of a sudden, Virgil Bilbrey, who was starting maybe toward the back, 
Uh, he was not very good. I mean, <laughs> Virgil Virgil was one of those guys that you're glad to have him because you like to have a full field of cars. Virgil was never going to win. Uh, he his car kind of looked a little ratty. Uh, you know, it just I'm trying to I'm trying to think of like I don't know if you put him in a percentage of uh, one to a hundred of cars at a track. He was he was in the low twenties. Uh, no, he was. He, it was just an older car, oh, okay. not very good, and the quality of it was down. But anyway, he sees Bab in the infield, and his inclination is, I don't need to be out here driving this car. That guy needs to be in the race. He pulls in, and he's giving Bab. You could see he's giving Bab the signals. Bab's kind of confused, like what, you know? And then finally, they kind of piece it together. Luckily, I think Ed Dixon or somebody had some kind of problem, and it slowed the race down. Otherwise, I don't think they could have switched cars so quick. But as it is, they have time. Bab jumps in Bilbrey's car, starts on the tail in this hunk of junk, and uh, <laughs> and here we go. And, you know, the Herald in the Review is 100 laps. It's a long race. And Bab, you know, he didn't just storm to the front, but he's clearly making progress and looking pretty good. A couple guys not getting knocked out. All of a sudden, it's clear he's going to be in contention. And then at some point, you just know he's going to win. This is this is going to be the dream story. Here's Virgil in the infield watching his car with Bab do something it could never do with him in it. And indeed, Bab crosses the finish line first, and the place is going bazonkers. I mean, they loved Bab there. But also to see this happen and to see it happen in the infield and to know what it meant, it was just it was unbelievable. And I, I think I ran to the infield quickly. I watched mostly from outside and ran to the infield. And then, of course, Bab goes to the scales. And Bab told me afterwards, he goes, when I was wheeling around, because you got to cut through the infield and do a little circle, he says, I caught, Vir- I caught a look at Virgil, who weighed probably about, uh, probably about 250. Big guy, big guy. Bab at that point is maybe a buck sixty. He's he's a thin, thin young, you know, early twenty year old guy, and Bab kind of like, oh no. <laughs> and so Bab goes on the scales, and it's not even close. Of course, you know he's eighty pounds or whatever he's given up. So they put him on, they run him around and put him on the scale twice. No go, and he, which is kind of like the Shakespearean tragedy, you know. Even though he does this rise from the ashes and wins, he indeed loses. <laughs> and uh, Ed Bauman uh, inherits the victory, the first of two in a row for him at the the Macon race, and it was just. You know, and to write that story, I remember specifically, I wrote, I mean, it was a lot to put in a story, but the next night at Farmer City, the buzz around the place, everybody was talking about uh, what happened. People were asking me about my story, and it was just, it was just a magical night. Turbo, I think you need to run Summer Nationals at one point. I will. I will. I know you say it every time, every year, but I probably will. When me and when Todd's officially done his last year's Summer Nationals, he's going to go do something else with his life. He can ride in the truck with me every night, so he has something to write about. Because you've been around me enough, we we have we nope. can find something to do every night. I like his, it. his last year of at when he's done riding. I told him that he has to run every summer nationals. That's what him. I'm saying. So us three, us here three, this hauler, you'll be you in. We yep. got to make a pact. There you go. Well, we always have to finish here with the interview. Is we're trying to make Turbo the best driver ever, and I can feel it since these three or four interviews we've done. He's gotten better because we you have to assess. Tyler Herb's driving ability, what maybe he needs to work on. You've seen him race for a long time now. What is it, eight or nine years now? About eight years, yeah. Assess Tyler Herb's driving ability. Yeah, I, 
I really do think he has some potential. I think he's pretty good. <laughs> maybe he needs to be more aggressive and watch his language. Uh, maybe those two things would be Ooh, a good I'm suggestion. Telling you. I hear you. <laughs> no, I think he's, uh, especially last year, really, in the last couple of years, he's been, uh, uh, you know, maturing and getting better. And just, uh, you know, it's fun to see a guy – uh, you know, when, when, when he's young, you know, when, when he was young, you, you spot some of those guys and it's always fun to think, is that guy going to make it? And some guys wash out, some guys just lose interest. Uh, so it's fun to see a guy that had sparks of, uh, sparks of talent as a very young driver come, uh, and, you know, be a national touring driver. So that's, uh, that's cool. Thanks, Todd. That's pretty. That's probably the best one yet. That well, was he the is most... not like we asked these other guys. They have bias. Yeah. This guy is a reporter. That He's is supposed true. to have no bias whatsoever. Yeah. So this is coming straight yeah. down the middle line. That was pretty. I feel like that was the most like. I feel good about that one. You know what I mean? Well, there you go, Todd. Uh, thank you for your time. Thank you for making Tyler feel better with that non-bias driving <laughs> review. We love it. We could talk about the Summer Nationals all day in UMP, and I know Turbo loves the history of dirt late model racing, so I know he greatly appreciates it. So uh, thank you for your time. Yeah, thanks for having me. It was fun, guys. Man, oh, man, Turbo. We thought, like, Michael Rigsby had stories of different parts of dirt late model racing. Todd has seen it all. He's traveled it all. He, I mean, it was just amazing. He's my coworker, and the stories he told us in your toter during Speed Weeks was phenomenal yeah he he's like he's master yoda i mean he has all this knowledge and you don't really hear it or see it as much unless you read his stories and things and uh i'm telling you it, it was amazing to talk to him and just hear his insight on a lot of different things and his view of some of the things that have taken place in racing and uh he is uh i guess he'll be i don't is he a hall of famer in dirt no he's he not in the hall of fame so we need to make a a run a candidate run for him that he needs to be in the hall of fame he's not in it yet i don't know how he's not a contributor but that guy has spent his life and soul in dirt late model racing yeah yeah he'll be in the hall of fame at some point you know and he's one of the few people that can make it in there not as a racer a car owner or anything like that really is just a a staple point you know in dirt late model racing and that's that's pretty impressive and it's it's honestly it's just it's a, it's cool to be able to meet him and still be around while he's around so I'm glad we got to speak with him and learn, you know, just learn a little bit of knowledge from a guy like that. I'm trying to envision you racing the summer nationals, like the late eighties, early nineties, mid nineties with like Bob Pierce, Scott Bloomquist, Billy Moore. That'd be phenomenal. It'd have been a blast. I'd imagine. I, uh, I don't know. I just, I, I kind of wish I grew up in that time and just got to be around those guys. Cause I, I love hearing, you know, older people like that talk and, um, just tell stories. I'm a big fan of old, old guy stories, I guess. And I don't know why, maybe it's just my, my body and my mind. That's where, you know, that's who I'm more like is, uh, older and matured people like that, but it's just crazy. And, uh, the summer nationals, I'm telling you, I'm going to do it one day before I die, before it's all over, I will run the entire summer national schedule, whether it's on my deathbed and I'm 72, just one car and a single enclosed open trailer but i will run summer nationals at some point it's uh it's on the bucket list for sure hell yeah and hopefully i'm still covering it as the voice of the summer national the face for dirt on dirt i cannot wait to interview every night and get a nice little quote but we switched the show up a little bit since we haven't been racing as much but i still have a berkey of the week i don't know if you have one so i'll go here tyler my berkey of the week is drinking beer with drivers again i mean it's virtually but i'm still having a good time drinking beer with them i drank beer with jeep and Berkey, Brian Burkoff, for 
during our stay home segment while we're watching their old races. And I've had a couple beers with some drivers on Zoom. So I'm still getting out there, having a cold one with the drivers. And that's my Berkey of the week. I'm still getting after it with the drivers. That's not, awesome. Not you yet, though. I need to get one with you. What? Have you been to Pub 2 lately? Is Pub 2 not even offering like a drive-thru? No, no Pub 2. I've like every single day I tell roommate John and roommate Peters like, I cannot wait for a bar to get open because it's getting nice weather. The beer gardens will be open. Like I am salivating at the mouth to get to a bar and have a good time. It's pub two, especially that's my stomping grounds. And I, you have never been there. Have you turbo? We need to get you over there. Never Ruben. Ruben told me all about it. He, uh, apparently he got to go to go to pub two one time with you and he had a good time. Oh, a good time. That's to say the least. He had a, I don't even know if he is woke up from his coma. He got into that night. <laughs> That's awesome. And what about Mark Richards? Like, he must be bored. He's getting on Twitter now, responding to everything. It's kind of wild. I would never see Mark Richards on Twitter, even though he's on his phone constantly. Yeah, Mark, he's a, he's like a, he's very tech savvy, although I don't think he realizes it. Like, he's up to date on the whole, everything that's going on with technology and Twitter and like that. And he's like, he's just like a dad, like a typical dad. My dad has, my dad doesn't have Facebook, any social media, things like that, but he's on my mom's Facebook every day, and that's how he stays up to date. And I think Mark was on it like that for the longest time. He had other people's you know, accounts he could look at, and that's how he kept up with social media. And I think he finally just cracked down. I don't know if he's having a midlife crisis or what, but you know, he finally got Twitter because he's posting you – know, he, he tweeted about Josh racing at the mile there, and then he was posting – I think he even commented on the corn take about French or late models. He said – uh, late models but at this point we'd like to see any racing that's just a typical mark answer like politician sure, type model. answer you know he's just trying to make it everybody is. happy he, he, <laughs> he could be a politician he does a great job of that and uh i don't know i like it it's funny i he's been tweeting quite regularly so i think it's funny to you know keep up with him i love i've always loved the fake accounts that they have not mark richards not club 29 um there's just there's a ton of not dirt on dirt not bloomquist all those and now that you know those guys finally have accounts like scott i think scott kind of does comment on his with you know some help or whatever but he puts his videos up and um now mark has twitter it's, it's funny because you know somebody's been like hey you know there's a fake account about you and they go back and read it and they're like oh oh my yeah and then so they have to like change their whole their whole twitter appearance i guess like this is actually me that, that fake one that's not how i am you know so I think it's funny. It's 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 good to keep up with. I guess it's giving us something to look forward to every day. You think he'll continue it once racing starts, or you think he's gonna be all business? Um, there'll be victory lane pictures only. That's what I think. <laughs> if if there's if it was a second place week, nothing. But if he wins, you know, a big race or victory lane pictures, Mark loves victory lane pictures. That's one of his favorite things. Hey, Gunner, especially if it's like a rocket top three. Oh, he loves that. That's like one of his. That's one of his favorite things. So that's I think we'll be seeing a lot of those on uh, Mark's Twitter. So so stay tuned for victory line pictures. We'll be basically seeing one a week then from the blue team. I mean, minimum <laughs> that's the expectation, right? <laughs> I asked this to Dale McDowell in our video cast last week. Guys like Mark Richards, guys like Scott Bloomquist, Randall, Billy Moyer, guys that aren't racing and are constantly thinking of what can they do to the car. Do you think they have an advantage of not racing or do you think those great minds still need racing to get that extra edge? They need racing because what happens is I'm, I've been in the shop with a guy for how long since we've raced. And I'm telling you, we've had all these ideas of mounts and rods and shocks and spring. I mean, just anything that you could change what, what you know, 
like it runs through their mind all day long. And I don't know if it's just, I'm not that type of guy, but I'm telling you, I'm so, uh, Randall, Randall asked me like two days ago, he said, what do you think we should try? I said, I think we should try racing. That's what I think. I said, I think we're, you're so like, we're so bored that you're just losing it. Like you think, oh, we just got to keep, tra-. I mean, like, you know what I mean? They, they're not getting to go try things and we're not getting to race. So like their mind's just rolling all day long about how we could be better. And, you know, not reinventing the wheel, but they're just so in tune with what's going on. That that's all they think about all day long. So I had to let Randall log into my Netflix and Hulu account so he could start watching Ozarks and different, <laughs> different things, you know, to get his mind off stuff. So that is one good thing is uh, Randall has been using Netflix and Hulu now. So that, that, you know, at night, instead of sitting there watching YouTube videos of us racing and dirt on dirt, he's got, you know, uh, Tiger King and things like that to watch. So, I think it's good and bad. You know, it, it definitely gives us time to just go back and basically do our homework, you know, read up on our notes and just watch videos and realize what did work at certain places and what nights and, you know, try to just make a better understanding of why we were fast that night or why we sucked this night and how we can do better at this racetrack this year. So we have definitely got a good grasp of all that. And um, our cars are by far, you know, they're up to date 100%, plenty of spares, plenty of, uh, you know, any off-season projects that we put off, we've done fixed and, um, you know, everything is clean, immaculate. And I think that's good, you know, because things like that, it wears on, you know, it wears on us and Randall and Mark and, you know, in the back of their mind, they're like, man, that water pump might go out on that truck. We just need to change. But, you know, things like that is crazy as it sounds when you're, when your mind's clouded, you can't always focus on what you got to do. And I think we've got all of our, you know, any side distractions that we've thought about or thought, hey, we need to do this or, you know, we need to tackle this during the next time we get a little bit of break. We've got all that out of the way. So now everyone is so focused on going racing that I think you'll see a lot of us will be, you know, at the top of our game, ready to go. Kind of like, for me, it's like when I go to Florida, I'm 100% ready to go. And I feel like the only thing that can set me back is myself. I feel like Randall's 100%, our, our equipment's 100%. And that's what happens throughout the year. You get to about June, July, and people are just burned out. We've raced so much. And then that's where you'll see, you know, a guy get lackluster and then kind of come back up and they just feel like they can't get caught up. Well, right now, it's, I wouldn't say it's halfway through the year, but I mean, we've lost a month and some change of what we would normally be racing. So I feel like, uh, you know, that's that much more in the tank that we have to, when we start racing, you know, we're that much more prepared. So I'd say uh, the guys that have, you know, taken the time to do this for a living that have really put all their effort into getting their stuff ready to go when we do start racing they'll be lights out as normal and the guys that just kind of took this two months to not really do shit i think they'll uh you know i think they'll kind of be a step behind that's honest that's my honest opinion yeah i can't wait to get back to the racetrack it's getting nice weather everybody's getting cabin fever luckily it's still in the time where a lot of rainouts can happen so you never know if we're going to race or not but i'm ready to get to the racetrack turbo Hopefully next time when we do our show that we actually have some racing in. You maybe have a W, but I cannot wait for you to get your first win so we can get a good quote from you. Uh, trust me, me too. Hopefully next week at Ohio Valley and Tower County. As of right now, I'm 99% sure they're still racing. So that's what's on our schedule. And, uh, yeah, I mean, we've got a lot of, lot, of goals to, a lot of goals to achieve this year, and winning is a lot of that. So we can't, uh, can't do that if we're not racing. And we can take all the driver assessments we've got leading up to this big race that we're going to get some W's, baby. That's right. That's right. I've been doing my homework and uh, a lot of uh, constructive criticism from all everyone, everyone that we've been interviewing. Well, until next time, Turbo, have a good one, bud. You too.